So we're coming towards the end of our afternoon together. I wanted to give more reflections about working with the practice in the world. And I thought I'd share a little bit about my own personal story. So, you know, I was kind of bald-headed, orange-robed person that rather remarkably resembles a pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much you know about me and my story, but I thought I'd share a little bit and weave it into, you know, ways of practicing that might be useful for your own lives and your own circumstance. Um, I was introduced to meditation when I was 17 at the University of California at Santa Cruz, so I have a particular kind of joy when I come back into university settings because there's something for me about full circle, giving back. And we weren't in as lovely a place as this is. You know, it was a lecture hall. But even still, you know, the class was on religions of India. And in that class, um, the teacher, Jack Engler, was a very gifted gifted and extremely articulate teacher, but he was also somebody who'd practiced meditation. So you didn't just get theory and ideas. You had insight that was conveyed through both the way he used his language and, most importantly, the way he responded to people. So it wasn't that he was dishing out a bunch of different ideas. It was like he was touching the human being that was underneath the question. And, you know, I certainly was very deeply impacted by that. Anyway, at the ripe old age of 17, I mean, how many people here are 17? Everybody's older. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for me, it was really clear from then that, you know, both the spiritual life was going to be the center part of my life, and then a month later I had a really strong image or dream or vision of being a nun. And from that point on, uh, until I came to the monastery, it was like always background, that that was going to be something I wanted to very seriously explore. And um, I guess I was taking... uh, so I left and came back a couple of years later, and I was taking chemistry classes. And the chemistry classes I was taking was um, to challenge my spiritual practice. So by that time, I had spent a few years doing retreats, and I had, without a shadow of a doubt, confidence that the teachings absolutely worked and brought forth freedom. And I was interested to explore, well, if this truth works, and I had some confidence that science actually was a, a valid truth, then I wanted to see if there was an overlap between one truth and the other truth, you know. So being somewhat idealistic, I went back to university to study chemistry with the intention of staying in contact with the direct experience that the chemistry was talking about, only somewhat idealistic. Anyway, you know, I thought I was a failure because obviously when you're studying, you know, quantum chemistry and quantum physics and all the rest of that, you know, you have to dive in deep in order to just wrap your brains around what they're talking about in the equations and all the rest of that. You know, forget the practice, you know, just forget it, you know, park it. You've got too much work to do. And also, you know, I remember with organic chemistry, you know, so I was used to I was used to being the bright one in the class. You know, so in organic chemistry, it was quite um, sobering when I thought I had done really well on the exams, and I realized that I'd failed them. And so I thought, well, actually, you know, I hadn't I hadn't gotten I hadn't figured it out. 
So there was quite a, you know how it is, you, you think it's one thing that ends up being something else, and then there's this massive input of energy and interest to try and make it work before the next exam comes around. And then I realized with that organic chemistry, what you know, because it was the first time in my life that I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out just with memorization, you know. So that the chemistry, the field is so vast that there's no way that you can just memorize the the patterns and get through it. So part of it was memorization, part of it was um, deductive logic, part of it was pattern recognition, part of it was intuition. And the three or the four or five had to work together. I couldn't just, I couldn't just invest in one I, in order to, for it to work out. But then when I worked out all of these different components of thinking and, and that were required, I felt electric because it was like it was the first time in my life that I was required to think in so many different ways. And it was so exhilarating to me. You know, I just really loved it. So, you know, I, I dove in deep and applied myself and did well on the exams. And, and then, so for me, the aspiration to be a nun way preceded the chemistry. So the chemistry was a challenge to my spiritual practice. You know, that's why I did it. And so, you know, being somewhat of the strange creature that I am, you know, when I graduated from university, um, the job that I had signed up or lined up for fell through, and the research project that I'd lined up also had fallen through. I was just an undergraduate, but I was doing light-dependent... What was I doing? I was working on the, the, the biochemistry of vision, so the light-dependent binding proteins in the vision sequence and isolating them and trying to figure out you know, what that... because it was before that had been figured out. And so, you know, to my amazement, I graduated and I realized, well, I had both the qualifications and the skills to get a job. It was never, it never occurred to me. I mean, I never once thought about studying this and doing this in order that I would get a job, you know. So I worked for a while in a laboratory, in an analytical chemistry laboratory. But during the time when I was studying, you know, during that whole process of, of being at university, you know, for me, the primary thing was the practice. That was primary. And the study was the context in which the practice was taking place. But the practice was primary. And I took temporary ordination in a monastery over Christmas break one year and shaved my head and took on robes and took precepts and all the rest of that. And the practice was primary. And I remember saying to my friends, you know, the university is my monastery. You know, work is my monastery. My boyfriend was my monastery. And everything was happening. That was my monastery. That was the context in which I was practicing. It wasn't separate from that. And it's actually a very interesting kind of way of thinking because, you know, we think the monastery is out there, you know? It's somewhere out there. It's not here. It's out there. Well, I would recommend that if you feel that the practice is primary, you know, go to Harvard Monastery, you know? And let that be the place where you practice in Harvard Monastery. And the studies and the work and the interactions with your professors and your colleagues and the, and the transport to and from and cooking your meals and washing your clothes are all the things you do at Harvard Monastery. It's not separate. And every activity you engage in is an opportunity to wake up to what's happening and how you're relating to it. Everything. Nothing is exempted from it. There are no taboo zones at Harvard Monastery. 
It's all part of practice. Okay? And so for me, that's the way I lived for many years until I actually ended up going to the monastery. And, you know, for me, you know, when I was 17, it was interesting that I had a deep aspiration to go to the monastery, but also the times when it get really strongly activated was when I was suffering the most. So it was like, well, you know, I don't want to deal with this. I'm out of here. I'm just going to the monastery. Or, you know, forget the complications that go on with family. I'm out of here. I'm going to the monastery. Or, you know, all of the complexity of trying to figure out what it is to be a human being and what intimacy and sexuality and livelihood and all of that stuff is. It's like, forget that. I'm out of here. I'm going to a monastery. Well, there was always a kind of voice of a wisdom that was whispering in my ear that was saying, well, there's no, there's no way. There's no way that you will ever be able to go to the monastery if the reason why you're going is because you're running away from anything. It don't work like that. You know, it's not an escape. I don't know where that wisdom came from, you know, but it's absolutely true. It doesn't work going to the monastery in the hope to escape. Because, you know, so the world was my monastery, and then I got to the monastery, and guess what? There's relationships, there's washing your clothes, there's work, there's intimacy, issues of intimacy, there's issues of sexuality, there's still the family dynamics that you have to negotiate, only the context is within the monastery. So the monastery becomes your world, but the issues are brought into the monastery. Because it's not an out there world, it's an in here world, and wherever you go, there you are, you know? So, all right, so I was in the monastery for a while, and that was the context. And then I left, and I traveled around the world without having a monastery to protect me, but as a nun. So I left the monastery as a nun. I didn't have a benefactor or a group or a sponsor or anything like that, and I traveled for five years without having a place that I could call fixed home, any of that. And again, the world was my monastery, But the monastery was both outside and inside because I'd internalized the precepts, I understood the practice, and I was prepared to meet what was arising in the present moment, you know. And then I spent five years doing that. I went back into the communities in England, and once again, the monastery was my world. So flipping back and forth between the world is my monastery and the monastery is my world. The world is the monastery and the monastery is my world. In robes, before robes, The world is the monastery, and the monastery is the world. For me, the primary point was practice. That was central. And whether I was in the monastery or out of the monastery, before robes or after robes, the practice was primary. So what's happening? And how are you relating to it? That's the koan. And that koan you can take into exams, you can take into the coffee shop, You can take into the internet cafe. You can take while you're texting. You can take into the toilet. You can take into the kitchen. That koan is a universal koan. What is happening right now and how am I relating to it? So you get to decide, you know, what's important in your lives. I can't tell you. You know, you get to decide, you know, the kinds of things that bring you joy and happiness and where you want to put your time and your energy. I can't tell you that, you know. I can't. I can share with you what's made sense to me, you know, and I can share with you the kinds of things that I've gone through, but I can't tell you what your priorities need to be, you know. That's something that everyone needs to figure out for her or himself. 
But when practice does have a priority, then make it a priority. Let everything be an opportunity for practice. There is no reason why that question of what's happening now and how am I relating to it can't be something that you ask in all of the different activities that you engage in. There's no way that that is like an invalid question where there's no place where that question is not relevant. You know? So we need to create the context where we can meet what is and respond to what is and welcome what is and learn to soften around our resistance to what is and open our heart to what is and begin to see that whatever it is, it's not ultimately who I am. It's not who I am. Uh, Many years ago, I was at a lay family's house, so it was while I was in the monastery, and I was a nun, so I had bald head and robes, and they were not much into kids, and it happened that it was Halloween, so it was extremely unusual that I was at a lay person's house over Halloween, the first time, uh, ten years, I think, I'd been in the monastery, not quite ten years, six years, I'd been in the monastery, and okay, so they didn't want to play, but I said, do you mind if I play? They didn't mind if I play, so... How do you play? Well, they knock and they say trick or treat, and my play is to open the door. <laughs> so the first group of kids that came was a, a girl, she, I think she was maybe nine or so, and her middle brother and her little brother. And they looked at me, and it's like, and who are you? <laughs> So I said, well, what do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And the girl says, are you a nun? And the little fella, who was about three, says, nah, I can tell. She's just an old woman. (laughs) I was 30 at the time. But what he asked was actually an extremely profound thing. How do you know that you are for real? This is Halloween. How could they tell that I was not just playing dress-up? But more than just for Halloween, how do any of us ever know, under any circumstances, we are not just playing dress-up? What's for real? Who are you? And how do you know? It's actually an extremely profound question. Because we can all play dress up. There's costumes and hairdos that go with most of it. But what makes it for real? You know, how do you actually know that you are for real? that this is not just a performance? Very profound question. Very profound question. Now, I mean, as a Buddhist nun with a shaved head and having taken precepts and wearing robes and living in a monastery, you know, I've got a certain amount of street cred. I am a nun. But as a profound question, how do I know that I am for real? It's a very valid question. 
So one of the things about the practice that I really love, I really love it, is that it takes us right into these places of absolute uncertainty where you can't know for sure. And that's where the authenticity comes. Is when one comes back into that place of not knowing and embodies it fully, knows it fully, drinks it fully, hangs out in it fully. And that's where the knowing comes. So, you know, my journey has weaved in and out of various different things. And before I got to the monastery, I went through Asia and had very strong experiences there, meeting different meditation masters and close encounter with death. Came back to the monastery. And because the experience with the organic chemistry was so um, much a revelation, you know, I didn't know and then I knew. You know, I thought I had it and I absolutely didn't have it. I had to actually apply a whole bunch more of my mind and my mental capacities than I even knew that I had access to. You know, I was obsessed with this idea of writing a book, Kindness, Clarity, and Insight Through Organic Chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) And using the process of studying chemistry as a reflection on how do we cultivate the spiritual path. Because a lot of it is there. The need for relaxation, for concentration, for focus, for priorities, the need for patience, for persistence, for resilience, the need to think through with discernment, with intuition, the need for creativity, the need to stay in the uncertainty and not know. You know, the difference between what happens when we live skillfully and when we don't live skillfully. You know, what happens if we stay up too late partying and how it functions the next day? There's a lot there. You know, there's an awful lot there. The difference is, is that most of the chemistry professors didn't have that same kind of interest in an ultimate freedom that you can find in a practice community or in a monastery where people are committed to waking up. So when I came back to school and, you know, and I was studying, there was a class that I was taking, Noel King, Professor Noel King, and I can't even remember what the topic of the class was, but he had us all write papers about our life. So I was writing a story about my life, and at that point, you know, the choice was between being a doctor and being a nun. You know, those were the two choices. And his response was, be a mother, it combines all the scum and the glory of being both a doctor and a nun. (laughs) You know, so, you know, we each have our own choices to make and we each have our own lives to live. You know, we each have our own things to sort out. But when practice is a priority, there is no reason why the life that you choose cannot be the monastery in which you practice. But what's really helpful, obviously, is is, is doing that around other people who have the same feeling, the same aspiration, 
And so, you know, you can see the value of what happens when people come together on a day like today. It was just one day, you know, and how supportive it can be, you know, to be around other people who have the same value and the same inclination, you know, who are willing to keep the silence, who are willing to stay in the practice, who are willing to sit through the grogginess and the sleepiness and the achingness and the coughiness, you know, together and see what emerges through sustained contact with what is. So developing community, spiritual community, is a tremendous asset, generally. And in our society, it's essential because we're split and splayed and fractured and fragmented all over the shop. And what we need is the warmth of other people to hold us and remind us of our own goodness when we lose contact with it ourselves. You know? We can't hold all of the pictures ourselves, all of the pieces of the puzzle ourselves. And so one of the primary values of developing community is, is that the community can reflect each other's goodness when each person forgets, you know? So these loops of, you know, I'm not good enough and it's not right or it's all not okay or it's, you know, I did it wrong or, you know, I, you know, all of that stuff, you know, somebody can say, "Well, well, wait a minute, you know, that's not the whole picture. You've forgotten. That's just a pattern that's gone on its loop, you know. Or when we get knocked sideways with sorrow or grief, you know, somebody can hold a warm, open heart to help reconnect us with the ground of our own being, to give us the strength to navigate the territory we have to navigate. But basically what you need is is to create community amongst yourselves, to support each other, to come into congruence with what your values are and what your practice is longing for. You know? It's easier to say than it is to do. But what I know absolutely to be the case is is that whatever effort pays is made in cultivating spiritual community that is genuine and authentic and actually has some depth to it rather than some kind of a superficial people gathering together, it just pays itself off in dividends and gold. You know, it's just really important. So I'm here in the States and my intention is to create a training monastery for bhikkhunis and to start a, a new model of monasticism that allows for conversations and an evolution to take place that I didn't find possible in the monastery where I was living. And I'm living in Colorado and you're all welcome. There's one woman who's training as a, she wants to be a nun, so we've got her robes, we're sewing them. We'll see about when that happens. And uh, one step at a time. Anyway, so um, again, my genuine appreciation for your interest and your time and your effort and your practice and the efforts to put this together and set it up. And um, maybe we can change the context now and have a conversation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.